podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Pod- Podcast. I said podcast. It's either barfless or I say podcast, but I you can like, never execute the you intro like to butcher ever. It. You like to butcher it. I don't know what it is. I've got this weird speech impediment sometimes <laughs> just for intros, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, thanks for listening, you guys. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, the fly fishing episodes that we did uh, at Pleasanton. Those were a lot of fun for me and Nick. Uh, we're going to try and do some more of those. If you did like that show, please... Um, rate us on the uh, iTunes and uh, Google Play. So uh, this one's going to be a little bit different, you guys. Um, we've got a buddy of mine that I've known. How long have I known? We've we known each other, Glenn. Oh, my God. I think over 20 years. It's been a long time. You guys are, and, that, you guys are that old, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And when I met Glenn, <laughs> when I met Glenn, uh, what, how we were dating girls that were friends, right? That's how we yes. initially met. You That's were living... Right. You were like in Santa Barbara, right? Is that where you were living at the I time? I was there, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you were going to film school. I was going to the Brooks Institute of Photography, yes. Yeah, and you and what what type of uh tell tell our listeners what type of photography you were kind of like, you know, specializing in back that back then. And when we say photography, we're talking film. Well, at the time back then in Santa Barbara when we were dating those really great ladies together chat and that was probably one of the best things that came out of that relationship was i got to hang out and meet you man so oh likewise bro i I think just things happen for a reason but i was uh i came from oregon originally i I came out of university of oregon and eugene for a few years and then i was going to finish up at this school called brooks institute of photography and i i basically went there because they at the time and i think well I'm arguably they had the best number one underwater photography program in the country. And that brings us to why we've got Glenn on the show as a guest. So Glenn is a director of photography. So in the industry, that's a DP. So if you see DP on, on uh, any of the, any, any um, credits or anything, we're talking director of photography and we'll get into what they do specifically in a second. But I wanted to talk about his past uh, experience. He so he basically works in outdoor film and television productions. So in in yes. 2010, uh, you worked on season four of Whale Wars aboard the Bug, Bar, Bob Barker vessel. One of yeah. the most challenging jobs you've undertaken. Is that probably an accurate statement? That's exactly right. It was very very challenging and probably the scariest job I've done. The most intense job I've done uh in a long time that those whale wars days uh that was kind of a staple in my career 
it was it, it it was it's you know it's known as kind of a buzz term show to have on your resume in my line of work when people see that you've done shows like Deadliest Catch or you know Ice Road Truckers, uh, Whale Wars is right up there with those kinds of shows. Yeah. So it's kind of like it, that. You you know it still gets thrown around even though that was years ago. Oh, he did Whale Wars. He'll be fine on this crazy <laughs> show about yeah, that, you know. Let's lower him into the well. Yeah, He'll be all right. <laughs> a lot of that. Put him in the lava pit. He'll he'll live. Yeah, put him in there. You know. Yeah, and then you also were DP on Edge of Alaska for the Discovery Channel, and you also worked again as DP uh, for ABC's Ocean Treks with Jeff Corman. And you and Jeff became became friends, I assume, after all all the trekking around the planet, right? Well. It's fun. Jeff and I actually, I first started working with Jeff Corwin in 2001 and, uh, you know, he had his show on animal planet second to the, the master Steve Irwin. Yeah. So yeah. Steve Irwin was number one. Steve Irwin was like kind of Coca-Cola. <laughs> Jeff Corwin was kind of like Pepsi or, or RC, you know, he, you know, it, it was great because Jeff, you know, when I first met Jeff, uh, I came off of another show called the Aquanauts, which was back in 1998. It was like six, uh, very attractive people with background somehow to talk about, um, oceanography and endangered ocean animals. And so it was a lot of underwater work, uh, and then the topside work for animal planet. And that was a pretty easy except for that network because Jeff's show was on animal planet, just like Steve Irwin's. And, mm -hmm. uh, they knew my work from there. And then I had some credibility from the guy that was filming Jeff when he was working with Disney, but then he decided he didn't want to travel around the world anymore. So I was young and I had just enough experience and I was, uh, you know, I met with Jeff, I met the company. They tried to scare me of course, out of, uh, like I'd be sleeping on the ground surrounded by poisonous bugs. <laughs> and, uh, I just said, yeah, okay. And, uh, I got the job and I did the first few episodes and it was a really good fit. And then I went on working with him for two years on that show. And then I started doing everything that he was going to do after that shows dealing with Alaska shows dealing with extreme foods all over the world, crazy foods. Um, it was, it was, um, extreme cuisine for food network. I did that with Jeff, but it was more like fishing for crazy fish or, you know, going out and, and eating, you know, scorpions and things they, they wanted like this kind of bizarre foods feel for it. And you know, that led to a lot of world travel and a lot of the same kind of adventurous stuff, just depending upon what the network wanted the slant to be, then we would just fit for that kind of show. And so I ended up working with Jeff for probably, uh, you know, about nine years before whale wars. And then I left to do whale wars in 2010. That's crazy. So where did before we get into the details of of your career and some of the crazy stories that you have, which I I love the crazy stories and I'm stoked that you're going to be on ta telling us about them. Um, where are you from originally? Well, I grew up in a town called Hillsboro, Oregon, which is not far. It's like 16 miles west of Portland, kind of a rural farm community though. But it's you know you have these big giant 150 acre farms suddenly are bought by Intel or uh, Volkswagen or these places. So these big, big, uh, corporate groups show up and then create a lot of jobs, whatever. But, uh, it's kind of an agricultural zone for Portland with a lot of business moving that way. So I, I grew up there on a blueberry farm and, and I've got two sisters and a mom and a dad. 
and if memory serves me correct, your dad had some some invention that probably everybody listening has put their hands on at some point in their lives. What is that thing? Well, he didn't he didn't invent it, but he sure brought it a long way. Uh, my father my father was an English professor at a university called Pacific University, uh, but he left the university to become uh, art director, which then eventually led to vice president of a toy called Viewmaster, the 3D toy where you place the reels into a red, like double-eyed uh, toy and the, and the reels, then you spin them around with a lever and you can look into the light and you can see images in 3D. And uh, I used to hang out with the photographers that would take the photos for those uh, Viewmaster toys and my dad had guys going to movie sets all the time and stuff, so that really got me involved in photography at a really early age. That's crazy. That's a pretty cool story. Uh, <laughs> you know, that that little toy, I mean, I, that I remember very well, everybody does, jump started right? your career. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's what started it. And my dad would, you know, my dad would take me to Burbank when I was like nine or 10. And I remember, uh, meeting Steven Spielberg one time, uh, just after ET was made. Damn, and, dude. uh, man, I, we used to, you know, uh, I got to meet Michael Jackson, you know, got to hang out with him on the smooth criminal set. My dad and, uh, always and with your parent, family. I hope. <laughs> yes. Always with my parents. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it was great. You know, I'd always have the newest movie posters and for a farm kid, you know, that was pretty exciting to have like, uh, you know, a crazy poster of some new movie that's going to come out or something great, you know? So it was, it was exciting, um, to be, close to something that was uh you know not not far or near to the big movie sets of these shows like batman you know and all these things that my dad's yeah. photographers would be on the set just taking these images um and, but yet living in a farm in oregon on the, the blueberry farm uh and then having the big dreams of course of making movies and moving to la that whole fantasy yeah so when you um when you lived in Oregon, were you out? Did you spend a lot of time in the outdoors? Because I mean, you definitely went the outdoor track when you got into LA and Hollywood. Yeah. Um, how did you know what what was your influence there? Yeah, well, I you know I did a lot of outdoor stuff in Oregon. My father was also an outdoorsman. You know, I mean, he loved to hunt and fish. You know, we'd steelhead on the Trask River. We'd do all kinds of stuff. We would, uh, you know, hunt grouse, deer, hunt elk, pheasants, ducks, everything. You know, he would take me out there. Uh, either we like the Wallowa mountains. My father has family and, you know, I have family, uh, out there in Eastern Oregon. So we would hunt, uh, you know, right around there, the Chesnim area and things like this. So I was always outside and, uh, I would build forts as a kid. You know, we had woods everywhere. We'd run out and, you know, you know, play military, play war, put, uh, horse nails and trees and build tree forts, you know, it was, it was really a lot of that after school you know you were making movies before you even knew it oh i did and i i made dude i made so many movies my dad bought a vhs camera and uh i started making movies this is very crazy actually i'll i digress <laughs> when i was in w Verde mckinney elementary in the third grade uh i got to make a film with my class on an eight millimeter camera and it was like a claymation project and that pretty much got me hooked that early and then luck as luck would have it my high school which wasn't a special school at all just was a normal high school they had a tv production program with a uh, linear editing system and so we could shoot on vhs and then edit to what's known as three quarter inch 
that's old video talk. Yeah. But basically, basically I was making movies, um, and a lot of them were Indiana Jones ripoffs, or I even made a Hell in the Pacific ripoff with a Japanese exchange student uh, <laughs> in the woods. And uh, I had edited, and I'd used like the soundtrack to Empire of the Sun, you know that Spielberg. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun going on, and I knew I knew from an early age that this is where I wanted to try to find a career. Uh, using a camera and being outside and doing adventurous things and exploring this world, you know? Yeah. So, so when you decided to go to college to pursue this passion, um, what made you decide to go to the film school that you landed at? Well, that's yeah. Well, so my dad was like, you know, you know, of course back then film school was all the rage. Everybody was talking about USC. Everybody was talking about, you know, NYU and all this stuff. And, you know, those are great. Film school has kind of disappeared in a way, you know, but uh, at the time, a lot of my dad's photographers that were taking these photos for the Viewmaster reels, they were ranting and raving about a school called Brooks Institute of Technology, which was started by Ernest Brooks after World War II, and he was the kind of known for uh, the master of black and white underwater photography and a lot of, a lot of serious photographers would go to Brooks. It was kind of tucked away at, at the Brooks mansion in Montecito. And then they had other campuses, you know, it was kind of like this expensive trade school that would compete with another school on the East coast called Ron Chester Institute of Technology, RIT. Uh, both of those schools are very fine schools for photography and they would compete with one another. But again, with the influence of my dad's photographers uh, for the Viewmaster reels, things like this out of, out of university of Oregon, I applied to Brooks and I got accepted. Um, and so I was really excited. So in 1992, that's when I moved down to Montecito, California and started going to school there to participate in their underwater, uh, photography department, because that's what I wanted to do at the time was specifically underwater cinematography. That was basically so what I wanted. Were you dive certified at that point or no? No, I wasn't actually. I, I, I didn't get certified until uh, I got to Brooks, which wasn't an issue. A lot of people that wanted to, uh, you know, to learn that particular craft, uh, you know, you have to start somewhere. So right. they had places set up where we could learn with really good instructors. And then once you got advanced certified, which is where they wanted you, that was just before rescue diver. So you could at least dive to 100 feet if you needed to legally. Um it actually was great. Uh, we, um, we, I would dive with uh, people from Canon. They would have guests from Jean-Michel Cousteau, JMCP. His, his office was near the school. Uh, Brooks has, had their own boat in the harbor called the Just Love. It was their own photography vessel. And it slept 15 people, and you had film processing on the boat. And, and, and you're right there in the Channel Islands in the Marine Sanctuary, so... It was like a backyard of incredible kelp forests and beautiful fish, chances to see all kinds of things, you know, whales, sharks, all the small stuff that looks great. Um, you know, it was, it was a great experience, and uh, I grew a lot. And I really enjoyed my instructor, Ralph Clevenger, because he was also a professional. He was working in the field, and then he would, he would come and teach the class and, and dive with all of his students. It was really incredible. So I got a lot out of that. 
all your all your classes were in the field like that because I, I was picturing something like NASA, you know, where they've got a big oh. old, where they've got a big <laughs> tank and you've got all the equipment that you're practicing yeah. with. But you, this was literally you were going out and I'm trying to imagine what the camera equipment was like, you know, for, well, to go under then. to go underwater. Yeah, we have especially. we have some questions around that like later to talk well, about the technologies and you know how it's how it's evolved which is really fascinating re- re- stuff remember then though this was 1994 probably when it's when i started doing it so it was i mean we're talking the big deal was like high eight cameras and you know this was the beginning of uh mini dv you know yeah, i mean yeah i mean uh and and this was all the rage now I'd still we'd still use you know 35 millimeter cameras and like Icolite housings. The big one was the the Nikonis five, uh, which was like this orange camera that you could load with 35 millimeters and these lenses and go under water and um, yep, yep. you know film these images. They were and they were they were roughly low cost. Uh, but then but then we'd have cam- uh, cameras by Sony and um, and by Canon and there would be like CNC housings and all these things that I was really interested in. I was shooting, I was pretty much the only one filming motion underwater. Uh, not that I was the black sheep of the underwater department, but you know, people were there to learn black and white photography from Ernest mm-hmm. Brooks, who's the master and he, his galleries, I think even still travel around the world um, to go see the photos of his famous blue sharks and black and white and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. it's, it's incredible stuff. And he's shooting like, Hasselblads underwater and things like this, these really great cameras. So, but as luck would have it, Santa Barbara at the time, they wanted to open uh, an aquarium, much like the aquarium in Monterey. And they wanted it to have an IMAX theater and they wanted to call it the Santa Barbara channel aquarium. And there were a lot of celebrities on the board of this particular program because of ocean conservation. And so I was approached by the school uh, saying, Glenn, we've got this great opportunity. We've been approached by uh, the Santa Barbara Channel Aquarium, and they want to use your footage in a documentary to promote uh, funding for the project, and it's going to be narrated by Ted Danson. What do you think about that? And they're prepared to give you a grant and everything else. And so I was extremely excited that they'd approached Ralph Clevenger about it, and he brought up my name, saying that I'd been filming all around the area. And so uh, as luck would have it, yeah, I said, for sure use all my student footage and they took a lot of my images and they used it in this presentation with Ted Danson narrating. And so that was a big thing to have uh, for me out of school because when I graduated, um, you know, I had this Ted Danson narrated piece that I had shot. And, uh, and then when I moved to LA, I had a lot of friends going to a school called art center college of design, Mm -hmm. which is here in Pasadena. I still live in Pasadena, but, um, this school, my God, they were filming their student projects on 35 millimeter, you know, big film cameras underwater with hydroflex housings and all this cool stuff. Yeah, and this is and one they, of the best design schools on the planet that he's talking oh, about. Yeah, yeah, Art Center. And so yeah. I was doing master students uh, Art Center projects and commercials for agencies uh, underwater. I did uh, like a, a, a Nike commercial by this Swiss director, and I got to film a Lincoln Navigator commercial with a swimmer underwater for an ad agency that because my friend's dad worked at this agency. And so now I had like commercials and this Ted Danson piece and all this stuff. And then as working at, uh, as an assistant camera, when I graduated school, 
uh, in LA, um, I just was throwing my cards around to random people. And then Bruce Gowers, this big director asked me to come be the underwater cameraman for Aerosmith for the 98 billboard awards as they sung their song pink at the, uh, hard rock hotel in Vegas. And I was underwater with the, with the United States synchronized dance team. And, uh, and then I had to have, um, Steve Tyler, you know, he'd say, Glenn, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know? And I'm like, I don't know, man, um, let's do something crazy. He's like, well, what if I just do like a corkscrew under one of these girls' legs, you know? <laughs> of course. Throw bubbles out my <laughs> nose and then come to the surface. I'm like, that's perfect. So we started rehearsing that and, you know, it was it was a dream because <laughs> I was, at the time, I was like 20, 23 years yeah, old, dude. 24. I was a punk, you know, and they, <laughs> they had me staying at the MGM Grand Hotel and I had uh, limos pick me up and a hot tub and a robe and all these assistants <laughs> like, working with my camera. And it was, it was, I, I, you know, by far it was the biggest scale job that I wasn't prepared for and just sort of faked my way through like it was no big deal. But I was actually really excited the whole time. You know, it was a, That's a really huge cool. thing. So all those things, one thing's led to another. I had all that stuff on my reel. And, and then, uh, and then that's when I started going out into the world trying to become you know, a serious camera person, hire me, you know, I'm ready. That's okay. So let, let's, we're, we are going to shift gears and talk about your, you know, basically like your, the hardcore career stuff. And, and, but before we get into it, um, yeah. we got to get, we got to do some terminology for everybody sure. just listening. So we talked about a director of photography, but we didn't really talk about what they do. The DP, what does a DP do? That's what, that's your title today. What do you do? What's the DP's primary role on a production? So the DP pretty much simply uh, lights the show and shoots the show and makes all the decisions based on lighting and camera. So the director of photography will work creatively with uh, the producers or the director on set to try to, you know, basically, in, you know, interpret the creative flow uh, to bring the image from whatever it is the story or the production wants, you know? And then of course there's things involved like, well, what, what, what's the budget, you know, who do we have, you know, the director of photography will often, um, you know, is kind of the gateway bridge between lighting and camera, you know? Okay. So, so you, you'll hire a great gaffer who, who, uh, can help, uh, light with all of the, the, the teams, the grip electrics and the, and the electricians and the grips and things like that, that rig everything. And then, and then also the DP then will talk to camera operators. They bring on with the specific cameras and that, that whole unit in the AC. And then the DP will creatively report with the director and the producers, um, that are basically paying for the entire program, you know? Yeah. And when, when you guys are doing those like in the field kind of things, like I, I think of like a, I don't know, even a whale wars production, how many people are on that minus say the guys actually shooting, but the, the support staff, I would say. Oh, well, you know, surprisingly it wasn't much. On yeah. I wouldn't ships, think because there, there wasn't a lot of room, you know? So, uh, that's and, what I started. Th- oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just, I start thinking like you have a, a studio, you have all these resources and things available to you, but then you get out in the elements out into the, you know, a, on a boat. And you, you're kind of limited to what you have, and you have to be probably get really creative on, on, yeah. on how to do what you just said of bringing that subject, you know. In. Yeah, because 
And the, the reason we ask, there's a lot of our listeners that have, um, you know, that have drift boats and jet boats and stuff like that. And they want to, you know, if they're trying to capture their day, you know, for social right. media and all that, um, you know, what are, I, I guess, what are the, the things, the, the things that they need to probably be adept with in order to produce yeah. a, a decent quality, you know, even a one minute two, three minute video? Well, I'll tell you what, um, yeah, when you are away from the studio and from the generators and the and the facilities and even the crew, things definitely change. You know, you you have uh, easier, smaller setups. You use less lighting. Maybe you have you you know maybe you do mostly available light, so that affects what kind of camera choice you have. You know, uh, also all your lighting instruments and things will probably be powered by batteries. Uh, for fishing, though, like you're talking about. You know, it can be tough because you need both hands to fish. So, right. I don't know if, if if you could bring someone who could film you doing these things, uh, that would probably make it way better for you because that way while you're busy fishing and, and being a star and showing what you're pulling out of the water, you've got somebody there to manage all the systems it could take. I mean, there are things you could do yourself, obviously, like there's GoPros or Sony has really gone really far with these cameras they use now called action cams. We use those a lot. Hmm. Um, Do you like them better than the GoPros? Well, a GoPro kind of fell off the market for some reason in in a lot of the professionals' eyes. I I can't really tell why. Uh, I think I think also it had a lot to do with drone capability. You know, because back in the old days, you'd have to hook up a GoPro to your drone. Mm-hmm. Now the drone companies just basically sell the camera that's included with the drone, you know, like uh, yeah. a and Mavic Pro. Yeah, or, the DJI. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it's on a three-axis gimbal are, and under two grand, you know. I think that that hurt GoPro quite a bit, you know, yeah. because usually you'd, you'd throw a GoPro on the drone. Now the drone has its own and it's good. Yeah, Sony kind of caught on to this thing. Uh, you know, they started making their small cameras like GoPro and um, you know, they're really rugged and really tough. I used them on this show uh, where we filmed a bunch of cowboys and radio cowboy, you know, you know, basically cowboys on rodeos and cowboys roping cattle and stuff like this. And uh, the company basically all bought action cams. And I think they weren't necessarily better than GoPros, but they definitely were a lot cheaper. So you were Hmm. not so worried about, smashing one or uh you know and they were made by sony too so sony is always a good name because they've just got good return policies good technology and more importantly good workflow you know when you transfer that footage over to your hard drives and you know it works with quite a few programs whether you're using avid or final cut or this or that sony usually is very dialed in whereas if you take a chance with a newer system or a different system you might run into issues depending upon how you're using the, the system in the post you know but um it's a good point. i would say sony action cams are something to look for i know gopro just came out with their new camera that's very great and you know and they're 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 still obviously the number one whenever you say oh let's put a gopro on it well you're saying their trade name and everyone knows what that means it's a small camera powered by a battery with a media card in it and a wide lens you know that's waterproof right. so right. that's they, they'll never lose that. You know, that's like saying, let's make a Xerox of this, you know, it's, it's like a TiVo. Let's TiVo yeah, that. It's, it's the same thing. So, so I, I would say just go pro the heck out of your boat because they're cheap and they're waterproof. And the more angles you have great and, you know, put one on your hat and, uh, and then, you know, you can get complicated. You can, you can put, um, you know, I, 
actually, Chad, you were asking me about a, a way to film these Mako sharks uh, underwater. You know, they they really need to make like a um, like a fiber optic cable cam that you can run along your fish line, you know, so you can just be so flexible and not really worry. I mean, you'll have to edit around the casts, you know, but once that thing settles in, it could be pretty decent. Uh, they're starting to do that. Have you seen the, like the underwater drones that they're, oh, that they're starting uh, to build? I, I've seen some of them. They're, you know, they're hardwired. You have to use, you know, it's a line that yeah, goes it's on to a the tether. It's like on a yeah. 350 foot tether. That would make sense because it, it, it couldn't be wireless, that's for sure. I mean, right. unless it records to itself, obviously, which it might do as a backup. But but then again, you're talking about a sizable thing that would have to be on the end of that camera. Yeah, so, I'll send you a link yeah, to it. Yeah, it would make sense that you would, run, you would just record from that lens on a fiber optic cable or something to the boat, you know, where the, the record deck would be, and you would just use it as a fishing line or something like that. That's that's great. The ones I've seen are, uh, you know, I did, I've done some stuff with some great white sharks before in South Africa. And we would use these, uh, we'd put cameras, uh, of course, on the rubber seal puff that's fake that you pull through the ocean, you know, to get yeah. the big bang from the great white shark. But also, too, a lot of those tuna rigs that you throw out to catch bluefin and things that have all the arms on it, well, that's just, um, you know, a, a stable platform for a system like that to be dragged uh, underwater to try to catch capture it. The only problem with those systems are is the visibility because right. you know the, that camera's got to be really close to that that fish in order to really see it well. Um, and even in really clear water, to have it be stable underwater, you're talking about a wide, wide lens that yeah. can be stable, and that means that anything far away from it's going to look very small, even if you can see it through the visibility. You know, I'm amazed by that. Like there'll be water, you can see every rock in the in oh. the river or creek, and then yeah. you put the camera down, and it's tur- it's turbid down there. You're like, what? Yeah. You know, that doesn't make that, any sense. That's yeah. when when we went um when remember we went up the Yuba and we we were jumping all this big green sturgeon, and and I I was in the front of the boat and had the GoPro on the water, and we we're just like, can't wait to get home. Home. can't wait to get home and check the stuff out we got home yeah. and it's just green and you can't see shit <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the water's right? just green you can't see I anything know. <laughs> it's a it's a it's an ongoing struggle yeah. guys it's very <laughs> tough because that's just one more element now and if you're making a tv show and you have to guarantee those images i mean that's a lot that's of pressure spent, you know that's right because you have to add days which costs money and um you have to try to fish uh, during the right conditions where you can actually see something, you know, or maybe you have to go back after the episode's done and right. and uh, send someone back with just that camera to fish to get footage to cut with everything you've done, you know. Wow. I mean, uh, hey, I have an idea for a show that I think would be great is what if you could find these places that were really, really difficult to fish with big logs in the way or like something really crazy but you know the fish are in there and they're big because no one can get there because you got to traverse rocks or climb or this or that so you put together a team of folks rock climbers pro fishermen pilots this and that and you call it fishing impossible (laughs) break into this bank you know that's pretty uh, cool of fish that you can't get to but with this crackpot team uh you can make it you know there, there's a draw it out. there's probably some guy that just decided to re- rebrand his company <laughs> fishing fishing impossible just listening right hey, now. hey foolproof films incorporated it's mine i already got it <laughs> did you have a question no okay he just kind of made it sound like what happened in my high school fishing days basically just oh, yeah. climbing over rocks yeah. and yeah trying to get a, the shot that i wanted to yeah so uh glenn what's like a day-to-day on a pr- typical production when you guys are doing the the uh, on location underwater stuff 
okay. Well, you know, you're probably sleeping on the boat or you're, or you're just at a location where you just get up obviously really early, as you know, fishermen do. They, mm-hmm. they set out before the sun comes up so you can be out there uh, when they're biting. And then typically what I would do on shows recently that I've done, uh, we'll rig GoPros and things like that. And the nice thing about it, if you're doing a fishing segment over a few days too, is you can pick those angles and leave those mounts, you know, up and have things kind of going a little bit early. You know, you, you just, uh, you know where your camera's going to go. And then of course I always have two onboard cameras, you know, whether it's me operating one and then another operator on the surface. That way we can get the reaction of whoever is fishing uh, and what they're doing and how they're reeling and doing what they're doing. And then film over the shoulder and film, obviously, what's coming out of the water at the same time without missing it. You know, That's a really that's a really good idea. Like, I didn't ever think to do that. Like, yeah, shoot the uh, action, but also shoot the person that's actually connected to the action, you know, so that you can kind of make those cuts back and forth. Yeah. yeah. To, to, so you don't miss really the emotion, you know, because there's right. a great, great expression that comes out of, you know, and it's nice to have that dialogue too, that's being recorded off whoever's fishing or whatever they're doing to, to, you know, put over video uh, of what's happening, you know? And of course, if you can get that camera underwater, you, you can, that's great. It's, that's a tough one though, because, you know, there's various ways and it's based on the kinds of conditions, you know, that you're dealing with, uh, which may or may not work out, you know, but depending, but, uh, Luckily, on this last show, I've had a very talented um, cameraman, DP, who's been working uh, on the program for a long time. And he uses the Sony A7S in a, in a housing underwater. And um, basically, uh, there's a lot of diving on, on some of the shows that I do quite a bit. So he'll get in the water beforehand. And then, you know, we'll do all the stuff with the hosts and everything else. And then while they get in the water, they jump in the water. He's down there already rolling, catching them. He'll go on a dive with them as they're looking for either lobsters or crabs or different kinds of animals that are being featured on the program. And that way, I'm ready to catch those guys as they come up from the surface, you know, and he's still in the water. So in the old days, I would do both. I would be like, okay, hold on a minute. Uh, Let me get in my dive gear after I've just faked you guys like you're going to jump in. And then they have to wait for me, and then I get in the water, and then they jump in, and then I film them, and then all of a sudden, it's like they're about to go up. I'm like, hold on a minute, and I put the camera at the surface, then I go get, I dry off <laughs> and get my topside camera. Okay, guys, now come up, you know, and they have to wait for me again. Now it's much faster to already have somebody in the water. So it's pretty nice yeah. just to let them go, have it be real time. Then when they come up, we're ready, we catch them, they, they, they close out, you know, and, yeah, and, and that's that. And I imagine in post, you have a lot more B-roll to work with as well. Is that right? Well, you get that B-roll too, you know, and then, yeah. then we do other dives, you know, we, we'll do, we'll do a lot of diving after the, the characters are not in the water anymore, you know, just mm-hmm. specifically for sea life and cutaways and everything else. Cause it's really hard, you know, being an underwater cameraman, some of the toughest parts about it is just communicating with everybody. I mean, I've had some of my worst accidents, uh, just because the person I was filming didn't understand exactly uh, how to make a TV show underwater, you know, where where that camera is underwater, that's the show. If you can't see me film you do it, then I didn't catch it. Like a lot of times, I'll, I'll say I'll we'll be at the surface, and of course everyone's excited and really nervous, you know. And luckily, uh, the hosts I work with, you know, I've worked with uh, Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau. They had their show caribbean pirate treasure on travel channel i i shot that uh 
I did a, a bunch of stuff with Jeff Core when underwater. I just did a Shark Week show underwater, you know, uh, called Shark Wrecked last year for Discovery Channel. Um, but on some of these other shows, uh, the people that we're diving with that are the guests, you get underwater after you explain to them, look, you need to do everything around the camera. They'll just take off. <laughs> and they'll think for some reason You're right that whatever them. they did made it on the program. Yeah. And it's like, no, uh, the, the camera's right here. So I spent a lot of time chasing people, breathing heavy, almost running out of air, <laughs> catching these people to slow them down to go, look, you know. Like one, one time I was in New Zealand in an uh, extinct volcano that imploded and there was a very, very deep, deep lake and only the native Maori tribe could gather these freshwater shrimp under there. So they, they dive down there, they're allowed to do it, and they gather a bunch of these freshwater shrimp and then in New Zealand there's all these geothermal pools of bubbling water and they'll take these shrimp and the cheesecloth and they'll just throw it into the bubbling pool to to boil up the shrimp and then they'll just dump it out on a table and eat it and it's delicious you know so this was for this extreme cuisine show that we were filming and so we were diving with these maoris and you know first of all all the dive gear is metric because a lot of times you know i don't travel with all, everything i need they want me to pick it up like in the country because it's a lot of stuff to lug around you know so it's all metric it's all crazy and you know, and I'm trying to, I'm the only camera down there and I'm trying to film like five people and our host gathering shrimp, you know, and one thing about underwater photography is you always want to get that subject between you and your host. You don't want to film behind somebody underwater. You want to try to get whatever fish or, you know, mollusk or whatever you're dealing with under the water. You want to get that thing between you and your host so you can get their reaction as they're looking at it and then it's right in front of your camera and then you need to get close-ups of that and stuff, stuff. of course everybody takes off you know <laughs> and then i'm swimming after these guys and and i find a shrimp you know there and I'm, i grab uh, one guy and i'm like i'm on the shrimp close up and then all of a sudden they go and they grab it and they put it into their net you know i'm like okay that's great so i i get everybody swimming by me i have to get all these shots for the edit all of a sudden i realize man i'm getting cold this is weird. I've been kicking around. Then I realize I'm way below a hundred feet all of a sudden because I, I see it in meters. And then I look at my American dive computer that I brought with me. I'm like, Whoa, I'm at like 122 feet. How long have I been here? <laughs> you know, cause I'm, shit. I'm working, I'm shooting, you know, so I'm not paying that much attention because dive master is supposed to pay attention to that. So all of a sudden I grab this big, very happy, strong Maori guy and I show him my meter. He's like, Oh wow, we gotta, we gotta get up, you know? So we go up and we have to do a decompression stop for like over 15, 12, 15 minutes. I run out of air because I'm chasing everybody. So everyone else has happening. got air, but I, I'm, I'm done. So of course now it's like every time I want to, uh, breathe in, I have to breathe out. And every time I want to breathe out, I have to breathe in. And I run out of air during the decompression stop. I'm like, wow, this is great. Jeez. And, and you were how, was, how deep were you out. at this point? Uh, well, now we were in about uh, 20 feet. We were trying to decompress. <sighs> and so I couldn't just shoot to the surface. Otherwise, you know, I'd risk getting bent, you know, and this yeah. and that. So, uh, you know, I had to swim over. And I grab somebody else's octopus. It's really crappy and hard to drag off of, you know. So I'm breathing off that and I'm breathing off that. And I'm like, God, this is really terrible, man. I can't believe this. This is, you know. So uh, that was one of the times where because I, I, I had to try to catch everybody because nobody knew what, what to do. And you can't talk to anyone. 
uh, that, you know, we almost got hurt, you know, and, and one of the, the things about being an underwater camera guy is, uh, a lot of times you're on the budget of the show and they only budget like one or two days to do the underwater for the program. So even if it's really bad and surgy and terrible and you're using some other equipment that doesn't fit right or leaking or a mask leaking or a, a regulator leaking, they just put their foot on your dive mask as you're trying to explain the problem going, look, we got to get this done. We have one day, you know, and they press you underwater and you're like, oh man, I got to make this happen somehow. You've literally so like, had somebody put their foot <laughs> on your head and push you down. No, that's my figures. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, they don't do it literally, but they do it with their voice and their right. desperation. They may as well be done. right. Even though your viz is like five feet and grimy and green Jesus. and tons of surge and, and so it's, you know, same thing with, uh, you know, ice diving. I got high, been hypothermic a couple times. I was, uh, we were doing a polar bear special for Animal Planet and we were diving to go look at ring seals. And yeah, sure enough, uh, I was down below on the surface. I got ice dive certified and um, our host, funny thing about diving in uh, below freezing water is your regulator, uh, you have to put it in your mouth and then put your face underwater and just go. You cannot put your regulator above the surface. It'll freeze. It'll freeze open. Yeah. So our host had his freeze open and they were using hot water to try to get it unstuck. <laughs> and uh, and I was just down there waiting and I was waiting and I wasn't moving. And then suddenly I just started feeling kind of almost like I was drunk, you know. And then I started, my hands were kind of burning and this and that. And then the dive master came down. I said, you need to come up. And then sure enough, I went into this hypothermia. Oh, jeez. How and they thick took are all the, my gear off. How yeah. thick are the suits for that situation? Well, they're dry suits. Yeah. Dry suits. So right, right. I would wear uh, polypropylene underneath. Uh, and then, you know, just as warm as I could get. And then put the dry suit on. And then you use your oxygen from your tank to insulate your suit, you know? Oh, uh, okay. You sound like and a Navy SEAL, not a, not a... <laughs> Not a cinematographer, <laughs> kind of is. Well, it's, it's <laughs> tough too because as you breathe your air too, you become lighter because you're losing your air, and then you so you have to have a lot of weight because as you're as you run out of air on your tank, uh, you start to you know you can get a bubble in your suit that will go to your chest. You've got to bend over at the waist to get that bu air bubble back down to your legs so you can stay down or be or have control. You know because that is true. You can you can take an air bubble in your suit it, and you lose so much. Uh, uh, wait, when you're done with your air, you could float to the surface and not be able to control what you're doing. And that's pretty dangerous if you're diving deep, you know. But luckily in the Arctic, when that ice freezes, the ocean where we were diving really, it was about like 28 feet, you know, it wasn't even one atmosphere at 33. So uh, I didn't feel worried that I was going to get the bends or have an aneurysm or anything or an embolism, um, you know, by breathing out or having that air expand, you know. So you could last a long time under there, but the problem was, was the temperatures and that because I wasn't moving and I was waiting for them and it was taking them over 20 minutes and I'm just sitting down there, uh, I got hypothermic. And so they brought me into the tent and they had me take all my stuff off and I had to hold on to a, a plastic Tupperware of boiling water and try to focus on that. And then uh, it took me about an hour and a half and then I ate something and then uh, then I went back down and finished the job, man. <laughs> 
because there was no one else to do it. I so as fishermen, I, I always think of myself as just a big popper out there, you know. <laughs> like I'm a big lure, just waiting to be grabbed by something. You know, I can be yeah. in a, in a warm ocean somewhere, and I'm my head's spinning. You know, I'm looking around, <laughs> flipping around, looking behind I'm me, the same way, looking man. the other way. You know, I just yeah. did, did you feel that same way and never kind of pray. get rid of it over time, or is it like that every every time you go down there? Well, no. I mean, you definitely feel vulnerable. I mean, the more you do it, the better you get. You yeah, know? Um, yeah. And then you, you start to focus on other things. Right, you know? right. Uh, you know, um, and, and then, but the, but yeah, you, you they, they are all very much better swimmers than, than any of us underwater, you know, <laughs> any animal that could give you an issue or even a bear, you know. Yeah. So, you know, we, we had guys with guns um, watching for polar bears because... Those guys can smell uh, a ring seal under six feet of ice. They can outswim pretty much almost anything uh, on land that's in the water. They're the largest land predator, and you'll never hear those guys coming. And if it's really stormy and, and misty out, you won't see the polar bear until they are very close. So we had a lot of natives. This was in Kaktovik, Alaska, up north. And um, we were working with the... Native American tribes up there, uh, and then Dr. Steve Amstrup at the time, for he was the fed for the fish and game, and we were doing the study on the uh, polar bears and tagging them, and then, uh, you know, letting them go. And then this was the underwater segment, so they had dug a big hole in the ice for us, and they had to keep it from freezing over, and then we uh, got to go down there. Is this the is this where you the origin story of how you got that uh, that photo of you holding the baby polar bear? That's right. That's yes, probably the biggest I, panty dropper photo anyone's ever taken on their life in their life. It's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> I got to show you this photo. We'll we'll put it we'll put it with the episode because <laughs> it's, it's hilarious, dude. Uh, um, yeah, we were we were darting bears uh, with fish and game in Kaktovik to uh, tag them, and the way you do it because you'll never find them or catch up to them on land, and they'll hear you coming. You have to use a helicopter. It's just the only way. Wow. So. We would wait for a big snow to happen, which did happen, luckily for us. And then you just wait there. And then when the day breaks and it's nice and clear and the helicopter can fly, you go out and you just look for tracks. Tracks, yeah. And then when you find them, you just follow them until you find a polar bear and you'll, you'll find them. And we came across a female with two cubs that were eating a ring seal. So uh, we got down really low. They had the dart gun out. They darted the female and then, uh, you know, of course, uh, she kind of passes out and the cubs hang out around her because they don't want to leave her side because a male polar bear, too, will eat, eat cubs, yeah. you know? Yeah. So we uh, got down there and then we uh, anesthetized the cubs by hand. So they were asleep. And then when everyone was asleep, that's when they started doing blood tests and measuring her paws and her looking at her teeth and. And then putting a radio collar on her that will fall off, I think, within uh, 36 months. Things like this. Seen, so that's when I got to hold these baby polar bears. And then when they woke up, I got to play with them and wrestle with them. And stuff How like cool that. is that? That's so awesome. That <laughs> yeah, was pretty great, man. That was one of my favorite times at work, for it, sure. Tell the, tell the story uh, where you, you got a, like that. Uh, what, you were telling me like a lion or something came after you. Oh, well, I've had a couple big cats come after me. You know, big cats. <laughs> big course. cats are, uh, are are crazy. The, I'll, I'll tell you though, the animal that's come after me the most is rhinos. They come after you. 
and uh, also cows. I've been attacked by cows and also by snakes too, a little bit. Um, but uh, the thing about lions is, is um, when you're filming lions, uh, they they are okay with you when you're inside the Land Cruiser or the Land Rover with the camera mounts and everything. You can actually get very close. For some reason, they just associate these uh, Land Cruisers, and of course, they smell like gas to them and smell like they, you know they don't. They're not really that interested, and you can get very close. But as soon as you step out of the truck, and if the truck pulls away and your shape is just a single human being. Those lions will be on you like uh, it's a dinner bell. Yeah, almost like the cartoon in the shipwrecked island where you're looking at the person and they turn into a hot dog for a second. <laughs> exactly. Like that, you're like, hey, what are you looking at? So uh, they, so basically, yeah, I, I just was working with these lions and I was using what's called a door mount, which is like a, they'll take the door off of the Land Cruiser and they'll put a like a, a balcony for lack mm-hmm. of a better term, mm-hmm. with a camera mount on there. And you can mm-hmm. get really low and next to these lions eating zebras and stuff. So I had a female lion. Uh, they had just killed uh, a zebra in the night, and they were all full, and she was laying on her back with her big belly. And then I – this was my first day filming lions ever. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was working out of the balcony – and I'm, I'm filming one direction, but then a lion comes really close to the back tire, and I want to try to pan the camera. So I, I can't pan the camera all the way 180 degrees without standing up and moving the tripod handle past my stomach, and then so I can sit back down and start working. And then, and then the, the driver was a very great, great driver, and he'd done a lot of shows. His name was Peter Blackwell. He's also a painter and an artist. He's really, really great. Uh, he was driving the the truck. He owned the truck, so he was like the can. And he was like, "Glenn, mate, it's fine. It's fine. You're gonna be fine. Just stand up, pan the camera. You'll be fine." So I, <laughs> I'm like, "Okay." And I'm like five feet from this lion, and sure enough, I stand up and I pan the camera. But as soon as I do, all of a sudden, that lion didn't see the truck anymore. Just saw a fleshy man standing up, moving. Jeez. And then she got really low with her big yellow eyes, man, and she just jumped forward and growled and yelled. And, and I'm like, I couldn't yell, start the truck fast enough. And so he starts the truck and he floors it and he gets out of there. And the thing kind of came after me for like about four or five different steps, you know. But uh, he's like, I've never had that happen before. I've never had it happen, <laughs> you know. Oh, my so God. just things like that, you know. Uh, and same with rhinoceros too. You know, we're we're darting rhinos to remove their horns and also to uh, to keep them from being poached. You know, if they're in a drought situation, right. a, a drought can mean without water or food. By the way, it doesn't necessarily mean no water, but they have to anesthetize these rhinos, and still they use the helicopter. But they have a very very delicate nervous system. So if you dart a rhino and it passes out, it's it's bad. You could actually kill it. So they. They don't really dart it so it's unconscious. They dart it so it's just kind of drunk, you know. And then you wait for it to kind of. It's really pissed uh, off. Did you do that? Did you do that one with Bill Cosby by any chance? Oh no, no. (laughs) Bring in the specialist. That's that's what they do. They try to give them give them those uh, sleepy time uh, cooperative drugs, you know. Yeah. And uh, and and but then they're they they are still very aggressive, and then. Even if they're seeing two or three of you, they know they know how to charge for the one in the middle, you know. So I I basically was caught uh, on the ground with a few of these rhinos, 
and they just use manpower to try to push his, push it on its side, um, and then they can work with it. But occasionally, the rhino will get away from this group, and then it just comes right after the one person it sees, and that's me standing there with the camera. And I'm I've been running in circles before, being chased by rhinos. That's what you have to do because they're so heavy that their that their weight throws them like further and further out as the tighter your circle is, you know? Oh They'll, yeah. They're good that's... at running at you in a straight line, but then as soon as you make a sharp turn for them to stop and turn around, it takes a while. So that's best good thing to know is to run in a circle. If you're yeah. getting chased by a rhino, everybody you run in a tight circle, <laughs> yeah. tighter, run the better in a tight circle. <laughs> so that's what I did. So t- tell us about uh, working on whale whale wars. We we did talk about that a little bit when we first started the show, but um, yeah. you know what was like? Just share one a, a crazy story. You can't run when you're on a boat. Yeah, when no, you're kind of stu- you're kind of you're kind of stuck where you're at you because know? you guys for that season four that you worked with on. Uh, I, I watched a few episodes just to get prepped for this, and there were some pretty crazy scenes in there um, where the oh, bo- yeah. boats are the smaller boats hitting the big whaling boat, and just like it looked like you're right there on the deck. Well, if you look at season four of Whale Wars, uh, Operation No Compromise, that was the season of the small boat because we used these small French uh, rafts. They call them rib boats. They're military grade uh, French speed rafts, you know, with like eight or nine layers of neoprene. But they're very fast. They can go up to like 35 knots, you know. They're very, very fast boats. And there's two of them aboard the Bob Barker. That's the ship that I was on. Bob Barker, the game show host, gave $4 million to Sea Shepherd. And they used it to buy a Norwegian oil tanker, an old one, that they refurbished and got going again. And then that became their boat that would fuel other boats. And then if they ever found the factory vessel, the Nishimaru, they would get behind that whaling vessel that the Japanese had. and 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 they would just not let any other boats near the the loading dock they would they were ready to smash their uh, bob barker boat into the side of these boats so they couldn't load whales on and if you do kill a whale uh even in those icy antarctic waters the whale will spoil within about 12 hours so it's no good anymore so when the bob barker for sea shepherd does that once they find that factory vessel that's it the whaling is over and they'll just They'll stay uh, behind that ship for weeks or months until the season is over and uh, they have to go home. So, But the idea was, was we were being tracked by a newer whaling vessel that was faster than our old Norwegian Bob Barker ship, you know. So uh, as long as they, the Japanese whaling uh, fleet knows where the Bob Barker is, they can tell the other ships where we are and then we'll never find them because we're on their radar being tracked. So the only way to get off their radar is to somehow slow their ship down, their whaling vessel down that's tailing us and get off their radar, which is 50 miles in either direction. So the plan of attack was we were going to get up super early and hide behind an iceberg. (laughs) And then when the whaling vessel came by us, we then go behind it, put a radio tracking device on it. And then, the Sea Shepherds use what's called prop fouling to stop that vessel. So they load up a bunch of rope with um, metal and anchor parts and engine parts and things, and they try to get that rope underneath their vessel so it winds up in their propeller uh, and then causes a bunch of rope and junk 
to make that propeller seize up and stop. And then once their vessel stopped, the Bob Barker gets away. So that was the plan. And I'm not a Sea Shepherd. I was there to film the Sea Shepherds. In fact, Animal Planet, they were very clear, like, like, listen, we need you guys to film what these guys are doing. You know, we, we, we wore Sea Shepherd clothing and everybody has mad respect aboard the ship for the Sea Shepherds. I know I did. I made some great friends that still last and this and that, but our job was to film what they were doing. So, uh, we were filming, uh, the prop fouling. And of course the Japanese are shooting fire hoses at us, throwing pieces of bamboo, like spears at us and stuff. You know, I'm filming it all, you know, every underwater camera, uh, housing and cameras would break too. You know, we'd smash them on the back of the seats. Uh, we would, um, you know, they would just get exposed to icy cold seawater, which is really bad for electronics. You know, fresh water is not so bad um, because you can turn the thing off and let it dry out. But seawater, it gets in there, you know, you're, it's, it's pretty done. much done. Yeah. So uh, the big deal was for this time, this was, I think, one of the times where, you know, uh, some of us thought maybe we were going to die at this particular point. This episode, by the way, is called The Devil's Icebox. That's what they named it. Because uh, we prop fouled this vessel, but one of the Sea Shepherds had wrapped the prop fowler line around the roll bar of the small rib boat. So I guess the idea was they thought that it would get caught in their prop and just unwind from the roll bar, but it didn't. It turned into a big knot, and then suddenly our inflatable raft is connected with a rope to the propeller of this big whaling vessel, you know? a commercial sized whaling vessel. So we start getting dragged underwater into the prop, you know? Oh, so somehow we're all the, the, our raft just gets filled up with water. Our radio fries from the seawater. Um, you know, everybody falls down, but, um, you know, I kept filming, you know, the GoPros were rolling. My camera was rolling. And, uh, and then suddenly, uh, the rope was cut. One of the sea shepherds cut the rope and we, floored it to get the water out of the boat and to get away from the the vessel and their ship had stopped completely after that so we got the word by the other boat that the bob barker was off the radar so we were pretty happy about that but as we started to move our uh rib boat the floor started tearing away from the pontoon i don't know if it was because our frame was tweaked or something happened but our floor of our of our inflatable raft was tearing away from the inflatable pontoon and all this water was running in. So we'd already been out for about seven hours and, you know, we were all cold and we're wearing, we wear like a polypropylene and then a wetsuit. And then under then that wetsuit, we wear a Mustang suit, which is like a Kevlar or kind of very, very rough uh, insulated suit that sort of floats, you know, it's orange and uh and gloves and all that and then you have to shoot a camera with all that stuff on but uh so we get away from there our pontoon starts and floor starts tearing we're taking on water so we have to hide behind an iceberg and our radio was fried so we used a uh, satellite phone uh which we were worried the japanese could track from behind an iceberg but our boats go 35 knots the bob barker goes about 16 17 knots and we were supposed to rendezvous with them at a certain point at our high speed, but now we can't move. So they're still six hours away from us. Jeez. Five to six hours. So we had to wait. And so we spent about, we had to spend the night behind an iceberg with a tear in our, uh, our rib boat behind an iceberg in the Southern Ocean. And we had two people hypothermic. 
And um, by the time the, the, the Bob Barker did finally get to us, you know, wow, we were really ready to get on board that ship, let me tell you. I mean, <laughs> I holy cow. Imagine. And the people that were hypothermic, yeah, the people that were hypothermic had peed themselves, you know, because you're out there for hours, you got to go pee, but, if, yeah. you know, the action's going on, you just let it go. But they were wet on the inside. Right. So the whole part uh, in those temperatures is to stay dry. So uh, if, if you uh, take a leak and you're wet on the inside and you're stranded for a long period of time and, you know, 25 degree weather, forget about it, son. You're going to be uh, you're going to be hypothermic and they couldn't keep warm. And and then the ships weren't the small boats weren't really prepared to be out there that long because usually a, a rib boat mission lasts about three or four hours, not. 12 to 13. Did you hours. want to get out of there just after that? Were you trying or you're like, I'm done. Let's not. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to cut my feet off with the Leatherman man, because Jeez, holy cow, my burning. feet were soaked and I couldn't get them warm and they were burning. burning and it was yeah. a, a very miserable time. And you know, funny thing after all the action stops and you're just there, then that's when your brain starts thinking and overthinking about everything. So then you become right. your own worst enemy. Yep. You start thinking about all these things and time slows down and you're cold and, so when everybody stopped and tried to huddle and wait, that's when all the anxiety really took. Because when you're busy trying to prop foul of a ship, uh, time flies, man. You're in the moment, yeah. And you're in the moment, and, and, and you don't feel it. And then, and then uh, you know, it's like a bar fight. You get punched in the face. You don't feel it until after it's over and you're on the way home, you know. And then you're yeah. like, ah, you overthink it. And um, yeah. so there was, there was a lot of that going on when we were done. But, uh, but yeah, hey. Mission accomplished. I've been in the financial Nutty. industry for 10 years and you're the, uh, just listening to you talk. I just, if you don't have a good life insurance policy, we need to talk <laughs> after, after the show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I could use one. You know? I'm too, so. you know, it's good to get these things out of the way when you're young, you know? That's crazy. What, That's absolutely crazy, man. Did, uh, the, when you were, when you were, uh, working with the, the sea shepherd people, did you ask them about like why, what their, why they think the Japanese continue to whale, even though it's, you know, politically and culturally in most of the world, uh, not something that yeah. people are really into. That's a good question. You know, um, listen, the, the sea shepherds, uh, they love Japan. They have no issue sure. uh, with Japanese people. It's just their whaling, uh, companies and their government that they don't like that. They, uh, were very obviously upset about them fishing in the marine sanctuary now i could be wrong i'm, I'm not a politician or a historian or uh you know and i'm not a sea shepherd i just filmed them and uh and had a great time working with them as they protect the the southern ocean from that um whaling operation uh but they actually defeated the japanese out of antarctica uh they're they they say they have a saying that they're in they're in the business of putting themselves out of business because once the oceans are safe and free there, there won't be anything for them to do and this and that but they uh the japanese were whaling down there because japan is a large economic power for one they're a very proud nation they're powerful and also they're an ocean based culture they mm -hmm. love fishing mm -hmm. you know they're they're basically uh you know a lot of their history is surrounded by fishing and yep. the pride of fishing and this and that. So it's really hard to tell Japan what you can and can't do. It becomes a pride thing. It's also a business, you know. Um, 
But there isn't a real clear reason as to why they decide to whale in the marine sanctuary other than the fact that there's just tons of whales there and they think that nobody can stop them down there, you know? So they did, the Sea Shepherds did stop them from whaling. I think, I think they were uh, around 2014 or something, uh, because I, my season was season four. They did, I think they did five. They might have even done a six. But they, were, they had chased the Japanese out of the Ross Sea anyway. And then I know there was a big cease of whaling happening. And only now do I understand that the Japanese are going to whale again but not between Australia and New Zealand. I think they're looking more towards the below South America and they're targeting these small invertebrate whales called minke whales. So, well, and I'm, you know I'm sure why? they wouldn't hesitate to, to get a, a humpback, but the minkies, I think they're going after. Why are they I going after? I don't know after, why, you know? Chad. I heard all this whale meat was going to, uh, to, to be eaten in schools, like kids' schools and things is what I understood, you know, and they had a quota of a thousand whales every year. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I'm not exactly sure why, but, uh, I know that the Japan is a great, they're a great country and they're very proud. Um, you know, just like the Norwegians as well, you know, or the Faroes islands and this and that their their ritual, their culture. That's another thing too. It's very cultural based. You know, a lot of these practices for hunting whales, even in Alaska and Canada is because, um, the people that have been living there for thousands of years have been doing it that long, you know? Yeah. We were in, we were in Kaktovik. They hunted, we were with a tribe that uh, was allowed to have, they call it strikes. They have to fish the old way. They have to use, I, I guess, skin-based boats and a harpoon made of something. Uh, and they throw the harpoon at, at these different whales. And they usually go for bowhead whales. And depending upon their population, they were allowed a certain number of strikes or attempts at a whale. And then when they would get a whale, it was usually a bowhead whale that wasn't a big whale because they couldn't handle a giant one. It was usually medium-sized or like a juvenile. And then the fish and game would come out and collect the eyeball of the whale because they can use the eyeball to determine all kinds of things, mm -hmm. age and diet and, you know, health of the population, this and that. And then they, they would divide the whale amongst, amongst themselves and they would ferment the whale and it would last all year and everything else. So, you know, and I did see that and I did film that and being, I, you know, I grew up where my dad would hunt elk and deer and they fish. And I mean, my problem is not necessarily the hunting. It's the sustainability. It's exactly. Because yeah. if, you, if you don't pay attention to that, you're not going to have any more animals to support your culture-based, you know, activity. If, you, if, you, if your culture is based on whales and you kill all the whales, well, there goes that. You know, you have to really preserve and, and, and allow preservation and science to count the number of these animals to let you know what you can do to preserve your culture. Otherwise it's going to disappear. It, it, did that show change the way you eat when you go, I mean, you travel around the world and you go oh, to all yeah. these places and you're eating all this rare, probably fish or having a chance to, did it, did it really change the way that you look at these, it, the sustainability of some of these? Yes, yeah. it, it actually did. You know, aboard the Bob Barker and Sea Shepherd, when you are there, uh, and I was there for 96 days at sea. Wow. Um, you know, you leave Thanksgiving Day and you come back, back April 10th next year, that kind of thing. Uh, they're all vegan aboard the ship. They're all vegan. Now, they're all not necessarily vegans, 
but they don't want to have the double standard of trying to save animals while eating animals. So they, they didn't have any kind of meat aboard the vessel of any kind. Wow. Um, but you know, I, I eat meat. Uh, I didn't, I didn't stay a vegan after I left the, the sea shepherds. I respect everything that they do. And, and I, I respect people that are vegetarian and, and vegans and things. I like to eat meat, but you know what I don't eat at all? I don't eat fast food. Right. I don't eat food that hasn't been raised. I'm more concerned with how the animals are treated and how they're raised. You yep. know, when, when I was growing up in the farm community, a neighbor would have a few cows that I used to feed after school. and They'd say, hey, we're going to butcher this cow and we're going to divvy it up. Do you want in on this? Do you want to right. uh, buy like a, a, a quarter, quarter cow? Of a yeah. Cow? Yep. Yep. And then, you know, whatever the cow, was, the cow had a name, the cow was eating grass, this and that. And then, That's the best know, beef that you can eat, we, too. We fed it, and now it's, it's going to feed us, and yeah. we know where it comes from, and it's been raised well, treated well. Yep. I mean, fast food, they take these animals in a cement box. They never see the, the sun, or they're right. standing around in their own feces, and they're pushing these cows through. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's terrible. Um, you know, I don't, I, any, anything that is inhumane, uh, I try to avoid mm -hmm. eating wise. And, and I also try to avoid eating farm raised salmon, you know, because, you know, of course that is sustainable. Don't get me wrong. I, I like the direction that's going, but I hear the water's not clean. Toxic. I hear yep. and what they're feeding the, yep. the, the fish isn't necessarily what they naturally eat. There's, there's dyes involved or something. To I, make I the, think there's some good places that you can harvest those salmon, yeah. but more, more than not, it's, yeah, it's the, not healthy. It, it seems you. to be a, a very much evolving industry also. it's well, I would I like still say it's it. in its infancy. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think to save those wild fish, you know, yeah. that could be dwindling in the ocean, I think the right way is to somehow uh have the farm raised fish yep, you know yeah yep. have something that's sustainable so you aren't overfishing and there's no need and then it doesn't affect the price being so high on a fish that's caught because there isn't so many and you know this and that uh but i i, I think i you know as of now unless i find out where the farm raised fish is uh guaranteed to be not loaded with all kinds of toxins hmm. and things i i would avoid that yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. I haven't bought a piece of meat or packaged meat from the store in a long time because I've harvested my own duck, deer, yeah. elk. You know, my aunt and uncle have a, a look. They have a cattle farm. So it, uh -huh. I'm right with you with all that. Yeah. I totally agree. Game meat's great, you know. Yep. But you, you got to protect it to make sure it's around and, um, yep. you know. And I film animals taking down other animals all the time. It's, it's just it's the way of life. And I think it's, it's part of who we are as, as human beings, you know. But uh, I just think fast food has really done a number on um, how we treat our animals. Let's. Uh, I want to talk about Corwin, Jeff Corwin, because oh, sure. out of all those guys, I mean, I feel like he's definitely my favorite. <laughs> you know, like he's like he was quirky and like kind of goofy. Yeah. You know, and like at first I was he like, who is. is this guy? You know, <laughs> but he's definitely one of my my favorite guys. He must have been so super fun to work with. Oh yeah, I still do. I, in fact, I just finished filming his latest show. Ocean Treks. He's um, he's on ABC on Saturday mornings on a show called Ocean Treks, and it's uh, it's good. It's kind of an educational show. It's sort of um, you know, it's a half hour show. But we traveled to twenty two countries uh, this last year, and he deals with still a lot of animal science, uh, uh, and we do a lot of um, ancient architecture, archaeology, and we do a lot of cultural. We do a lot of food. 
you know, and he still, he hunts and fishes and everything else. Um, and he, uh, represents that with his programming too. You know, we, we eat a lot of things and then he does talk about the sustainability. Uh, he talks about the health of the population, everything else. So, but you know what? And then on top of that, like you pointed out, he is very funny. He's very charismatic. He does a good job. And I think, I think it's a good balance of his humor to keep people that maybe wouldn't ordinarily be engaged in something to mm-hmm. learn about these kinds of things too. So it's been a great time. And I, he's a good friend of mine and I'm really happy to have uh, established this long relationship with Jeff. You know, it's, uh, it's been a great road with him. That's pretty cool. It's rare to, to meet somebody, you know, and, and yeah. be in the same career and still keep in touch that long. That's really, really special. And his wife and his daughters are amazing. And, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that, uh, Jeff Corwin, I mean, he's been going since the late nineties. I yep. mean, that's a long yeah. time. Most of these guys are, are washed up or done or Jeff does a very good job at reinventing himself and moving forward and being progressive. You know, he's a good guy. I got many stories with Jeff, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we, we also share the, a similar sense of humor. You know, we have a great time together when we're working out on the road. And that's, that's like 90% of it, right? Big time. Yeah. He's a great guy. I don't really know why. Like I th- I, I'm proud to call him a friend. The one episode I think about, I think about him catching these snakes in Costa Rica or something like, or looking for them. <laughs> and it was like the one, what are they, I can't get the name in my head. They're nasty, yeah. nasty looking, vipe, not Viper. It's oh, in I Costa can't. Rica. I shot that one in Costa Rica. You did? Yes. The Fair de Lance was the scariest. The, that's one. it. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Thank- that was crazy. When I filmed that with Jeff, uh, we lo- we actually lost that one. Uh, we, we, he'd caught it and then, uh, we didn't know where it was. Oh, shit. And, and that's one of the most dangerous things about the fair to land snake is, is you don't see it. It's so fast that it'll bite you and it will leave. And if you ever get bitten by a fair to land snake, the, I mean, the main thing is if you get bitten by any snake is to try to recognize what it looks like. Right. So we were really worried because I'm at the time too. That camera was a, a beta SP camera. That's a very old style Sony. Actually, it was an Ikigami H55i. That was the camera I was using for se- that second season of it. That's a black and white eyepiece. So try to find a, a snake hidden in the sticks in black and white. You can't do it. And if that thing bites you, Jeff was struggling all over the place. We chased that thing. It was so quick. We finally caught it. But uh, if you get bit by that snake, snake or any snake in Costa Rica, if they get to you in time, they'll just give you the fair to lance venom anti venom because nine times out of ten, if you didn't see the snake, that's what it was. They won't risk it and they'll just give it give you the shot. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember they're being kind of hard to find because the locals just kill them when they see them. Oh, yeah. And you know, that's a big issue too, uh, because there are some snakes that aren't venomous that actually eat other venomous snakes and locals will take those out just because they're a snake. And it's because they don't know. It's not their fault. It's just they're not educated to know that there are snakes like the indigo snake that eats other venomous snakes. You know, um, there are snakes that actually detract, you know, any kind of viper or rattlesnake and indigo snake will eat, um, you know, but also snakes are a sign of a healthy ecosystem. You know, they, the snakes get a bad rap. Snakes and sharks get a very bad rap in this, um, natural world. Of course, you don't want them around your children, biting them or having them be a threat, you know, you gotta, but, um, you gotta uh, blame your 
your uh, your hero Steven Spielberg for that. Oh, he, Jaws, 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 and Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark for for snakes. snakes are yeah, the, that's that, the only they, nightmare <laughs> I have are snakes. <laughs> You're right. Spielberg, it's true. Spielberg He's has single handedly. <laughs> he has done a number. You know, um, he these really animals, has, dude. Yeah, I I, it's it's Hollywood, you know, but yeah, I had a a dream that I came back from New Zealand and I was, um, I had this crazy dream that this native American kind of rolled up to me on a, uh, on a quad and he was pointing at my feet and I'm like, you know, I I was walking a river (laughs) and hiking this river fishing and it was just, I had some very vivid dreams, but this guy's pointing at my feet. I'm like, what the heck? What are you? And he's talking in, in a different tongue. I don't even know what he's saying. And he, and he's like kind of mumbling these words. And I had no idea what he's saying, <laughs> but he's pointing at my feet. I looked down and there was a rattlesnake curled up at my feet uh, and I go to step away and it snapped me right in the toe, right in the, on my left foot. Bam, hit me. and It was stuck. Whoa. So I'm sitting there shaking, trying to get it off. I step on with my right foot and go to pull it off and it turns around and bites me on the right foot. And I'm sitting there like, and finally, I just obviously freak out in my dream, and I wake up, and, and I'm and laying in my bed, and both my feet are throbbing. Oh. Wow! It was crazy. It was no one of the crazy, yeah, it was one of the craziest things that I've ever experienced with with dreams. You know, it's like how yeah. your mind can basically make things <laughs> real. You know, the mind is a powerful thing. Uh, it was my a trip. Goodness. It was a trip. People are like, "What are you talking?" People are gonna be like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> wow. So I want to yeah. I want to switch gears up, Glenn, and, and kind of get the storyline. Yeah, more like storytelling, sure. some storytelling stuff. So when you guys go out, you know, on these on these shoots, um, what what are like the key elements you're trying to do get capture to tell that story? Like you know, what in, yeah. in, in a book, it's like the beginning, the middle, of the end. Um, right. What's the What's the uh, equivalent in film? Well, it, it well it, it can go a few different ways, but typically, let's say you're working with a host like with Jeff Corwin, for example. I'll give you that example. Uh, you know, there's a difference between uh, some of these straightforward animal documentaries like Planet Earth and Frozen Planet and the new show that's out, Dynasties, that's on BBC right now. I highly recommend watching that. It's really they spent two years tracking lions and painted wolves and penguins and all these great animals. Very great show. I've been Very watching different it. show. Yeah, I've been watching yeah. it. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's a good one. So, uh, uh, But typically, you know, um, if you're working with a host, you have to involve the host uh, and tell the story through the host's eyes, you know. So, like, for example, with Jeff, you know, a lot of times, you know, Jeff will be involved with a, uh, a substantial kind of already – um, serious scientific study, which gives you the absolute reason to handle these animals. You know, the funny thing about the old days when it was Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin back in the day in early 2000s, I mean, they would just run up to a snake and grab it and talk about it and put it back. You know, you can't do that anymore. PETA would be all over you. There's no reason to hassle that animal, you know, this or that, or you handled it wrong or you dropped it the wrong way. I mean, there was a lot of uh, scrutiny. But if you have a scientific study linked to what you're doing, right. uh, then the scientists are part of it, and then you're working with them, and then that's just how it is. And that, that's better for the show because it's more legit. you know. So you basically, the first thing you do when you set out is you tell the story, and you try to uh, establish your host and your scientist, uh, and you talk about what they're going to do, what they're doing, the equipment they use, and then you film their process. So you have to capture what they're using. Let's say they're tracking an animal or they're going to go put a tracker on an animal. 
then you know you usually set that up. Now you you can spend a lot of time not even working with the animal doing that. You know, it's a huge part of the show, just building it up as to as far as what they're doing. So so then you know typically what I do is I like the feel of having the camera with the scientist and the host, not in front of them, you know, like the cameras there first, you need to be with them as it unveils itself, because that's part of the story. Mm-hmm. You're, and it's, it, this is, this brings up an interesting point. When you have a host, you're telling the story of the host with the animal. When you're doing something like planet earth, you're telling the story of only the animal mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. So you, you have different equipment for that. I'm going to use a, a handheld system with a wider lens to chase around Jeff Corwin or yep. any host, you yep. know, yep. and then I'm going to try to get as many relationship shots as I can. And when I say that, I mean, I have to have the, the animal and the host in the same shot, you see. Mm-hmm. So the audience knows that they're with that animal. If I only film Jeff and I only film the animal and they just cut back and forth, well, Jeff can be in Texas and the animal could be where it lives and you'd never know, you know, the only way you can tell that the host is with that animal is to have that very important relationship shot, big shots over the shoulder, this or that. The drone helps with that, you know, things like this. So then, only then after the story is told, if I have a second camera, that second camera will either be on the scientist or on a tripod on a very long lens on that animal, just filming that animal as long as we have it, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's a cutaway point. That then is our footage of what they're seeing. That could be considered a, a point of view. Storytelling. or, or what, Yeah. Right. So you need to get those shots of the animal at the same time as telling the story. And how you do that is you have an extra camera that's pointed at that animal and only film that animal. And then the other camera or cameras, if you are lucky enough to have a budget for three cameras, you can cross-shoot that scientist and Jeff doing what they're doing, uh, handheld with wide lenses, and then cut it with the contrast of that nice long lens shot on the animal. And then, and then uh, you, you don't have to interrupt the workflow so much because that's the other thing. You can't really stop and start because the animal can take off or it might be sensitive when the animal is anesthetized. You have to work through because the test has to be done very quickly. You don't want to hurt the, uh, the animal and you want to preserve the integrity of what the scientists are doing. So, so that's why the wide lens is handheld is and always roll, 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 because you cannot stop during those instances. Uh, an animal could even die, you know. Uh, and the last thing you want to do is go, "Oh, wait, could you just say that again?" Because I missed <laughs> it. While you know, right. so you have to be very ready. You cannot stop once you start. If if you miss something, then you just have to either use technique to fix it later, or if the animal's done and they release the animal and that's all done. Go back and put them in that area where they prep the animal and get their faces saying that or their hand, you know, you just, you cannot interrupt what's happening, especially if it's a, a crucial or, um, you know, the thing is going to overheat. You may- so there's that. So, so then you release the animal and you let it go and then you, you just tell the story and you get those reactions. Now, if I didn't have a host, it would be very different. I would have like an Alexa with some amazing resolution with a, a, a Canon 50 to 1000 millimeter lens, you know, and I would, I would just be able to track animals, film animals all day, uh, gimbals and things. I would use, uh, video trap cameras and stuff near mm-hmm. watering holes. I would use 
uh, drones or if I need to do long distance stuff, you have to get a helicopter with a West cam and you just pump up that resolution and make a massive, beautiful feature out of it because you don't have a host to deal with. You're only telling the story of the animal and that that's more freedom, but you're going to have like the Brits will take two years to make a, sh a one hour program about uh, some animals. And usually Americans want to throw a host in there and they'll give you about three weeks. <laughs> so that's the difference. I'm always amazed yeah. when you see these shots, you know, of mountain li of lions, you know, getting ready to attack a gazelle or whatever, you know, you're yeah. like, yeah. you're like, how do the, how do these guys, but, do? like you got to just dude, camp out yeah. and sit there yeah. forever to it's get like these a, freaking shots. It's like a hundred percent, like if you, you take a, a hundred days, they probably sat for 99 Point nine well, percent of those days before they got that shot. I wonder if there's some, have, some tricks I, up I your sleeve. I have a story about that. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah I, I have done that kind of work before. I did a documentary on lions uh, with Jeff, actually. And it was an hour and a half special. And they had they had put us in the Masimara in Kenya. And they wanted a lion kill during the day. We were there for 33 days, and on the 32nd day is when we finally got oh my God. one lion doing a successful kill. Lions will try, but they fail four out of five times. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They, they, there's, there's a million things. And, and then also, too, you have to choose your parks carefully because if you're going to try to get an, uh, a lion kill, you need to do it in a place where you can see the lion from a long distance. Some of these parks have big trees and rocks and are hilly. That lion will disappear. It'll go around the corner of a right. rock. You don't know what it's doing. So you have to go to the grasslands like the Serengeti yep. or the Masimara where they actually where they shot dynasties. That way you can track these lions, follow these prides, and then hopefully they don't kill at night when they usually do. I mean, it would, it would always be so detrimental when you film some skinny group of lions. <laughs> and then because you don't have the permit, you've got to leave at night. And then you come back, and then oh, you find them in the morning with full bellies and a zebra torn up, and they're just all taking a nap, you know. And will they? Do they eat? Do, will they eat the next day, or do they kind of just chill for a couple of days before they're out again? They'll eat off. What they'll do is they'll eat off that carcass for about three or four days, and uh, then the you know, hyenas get involved. They'll get involved, and then, <laughs> and then they'll put a lion. Uh, will sleep next to the carcass and like. Uh, buzzards and things will, will vultures will land on it and then the lion will run at the carcass and scare all the vultures off and then go back to sleep you know that kind of thing right like like you a know, guard that's it but you know it gets so hot during the day lions don't do much during the day they do it in the early early morning or in the evening yep usually during the day when the sun's right overhead they're just hanging out under a tree or just lying on their backs, you know? I've got an, another story. This one really happened, though. This wasn't a dream. I was <laughs> fly fishing on, on the Trinity. I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast, but um, okay. I, I was watching this trail, and I had my deer rifle, and I was going to potentially walk over there and just to take a walk. You know, I had a tag that I needed to fill, and um, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to keep fishing. I'm just too lazy. I had my Nikon in my hand, and I'm sitting on a rock uh -huh. watching my buddy fish, and all of a sudden all hell broke loose across the creek. And I thought I was watching a, a coyote chase a rabbit. It was happening so fast, you know, and they're, and they're getting closer and closer. And I realize I'm watching a mountain lion attack a baby deer. And this thing is, they're booking, you know, the baby deer starting to scream yeah. at this point and the mountain lion's right on its butt and they're coming and coming and they get right even with uh, my buddy and I in the, in the water. And 
um, yeah. a baby deer comes down the embankment to get away, you know, and come down towards the water and the mountain lion yeah. grabbed onto its butt and they both tumbled down to the water's edge behind these bushes that we couldn't really see anymore at this point. And I'm just, <laughs> I got a Nikon in my hand. I'm sitting there with my mouth open and I'm, you know, and I still think to this day, is like, how do these guys get these shots? You know, that when all this, yeah. all this stuff happens, the baby deer got away and, you know, bounced its way down and the mountain lion realized we were there and kind of slowly worked its way back <laughs> up the hill. And I got a blur, it was kind of getting dark. I got a blurry picture of its butt, you know, heading back, yeah. up, heading back up the hill. But it just makes me think about you guys and how much time that you spend and how hard it is to get these shots. Yeah. You know, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's all about the waiting game. You got to wait for it, wait for it. I, I had one quick story. Uh, I was in India just recently, actually, uh, before Christmas and, uh, we were trying to look for tigers, very hard to find them, but we found these wild fox type dogs called doles and doles hunt sambar deer and we were hanging out by the river same as you because a lot happens by rivers because they drink there mm -hmm. you know they hang mm -hmm. out there all of a sudden this sambar deer looks like a small female just runs in the middle of the river and her nostrils are just blaring you know she's breathing really hard and these doles all just showed up and surrounded her and started swimming in the river after her Whoa. she ran and then finally you know what she did she saw we were standing there. And went right at you. And she just came right over by us. <laughs> and then the doles looked at us, and they weren't going to come near us, and they just took off. And that's how she survived. Wow. She just hung out with the camera crew. <laughs> I wonder if that baby deer saw the same thing. There's people. Run to the people. Yeah. <laughs> Run near the folks. So when you're, you were talking a little bit earlier, um, it, awkward positions. Do you have to get in a lot of awkward positions to get that perfect shot? I mean, and then the yeah. other thing I was thinking about is, I heard this tip one time about, you know, shooting video, you get your buddy to hold the camera and you, you see, you get the footage back and it's just bouncing all over the place, you know? So I really right. emphasize like, Hey, if you find a subject, if it's the fish, if it's the person, whatever it is, like count to seven, you know, like slowly count to yeah. seven to keep that subject in the frame so that, you know, you, you yeah. don't have that bouncy footage, you know, when you get back. Um, yeah. Hold your shots. If you're a single camera and you're filming somebody fishing, and you really want to see that fish come out of the water, uh, professionally, what I would do is I would start, obviously, over the shoulder, behind the shoulder, and have the host get used to kind of looking sideways to talk to the camera so you get the action and the, and the fisherman in the same wide shot. Mm -hmm. When that fish gets close, I would move past the shoulder and zoom in. Uh, not super close just because the thing's going to be moving around and you want to keep it in the frame. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, you want it to be steady, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're wider, you're steadier. It's more important to be wide and to follow the action than to be too close and have it be out of focus and bumpy and crazy unless you want that frenetic feel for right. the piece. You right, know? right. So you just kind of hang on the fish. And then as it comes out, you know, the net comes in or whatever you're going to do, you can widen out. And then when it goes into the net, then you can zoom in close and then just follow that fish over to the fisherman and then kneel down and let the fisherman uh, talk about the fish, bring it out and just, and just stay kind of wide. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to get those close-ups after the talking's done, you get those close-ups. And mm -hmm. then if you're going to release it, then, uh, you know, you're wide and you release it. And then heaven forbid, if you're, if you're editing a show and the fisherman goes, Oh, I forgot to say this or that. Well then just go back and kneel down and do a head and shoulder shot and get them talking about it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's how you make a TV show, you know? But of course, you if you want it to be natural and raw, and you 
and you don't want to cut and, and it's real, then you have that with the first take because you stayed wide enough, you know? Right, right. And you let that dialogue carry over. Uh, you know, it's nice to have somebody start a sentence and some hosts hate this, you know, because some hosts think, oh, the, the camera's on me. They need to film me saying my whole sentence. Uh, but a lot of times mid-sentence, I'll I'll tilt down and get the animal because I know that the dialogue is going gonna, is gonna to hold over uh, the detail of the fish and I can go to hands pointing and this and that. I don't necessarily need to see the words coming out of the mouth, hmm. you know, because no one wants to just sit there and watch somebody talk. You want to see what they've caught right out of the water. So, right. so you know, they're talking point. tilt down in mid sentence and then get those detail shots and it will lead right into the fingers pointing and this and that. And then instead of tilting up and leaving the fish, maybe back up, with the fish in the frame still and go wider. So you have the fish and the fisherman, mm -hmm. you know, and then that way they can move towards you or move around and you're not going to miss anything that's going to happen. There's a big emphasis on keep fish, keep them wet, right? Hashtag keep yeah. them wet right now. Keep and, them wet. And sure. so the, the GoPros and the underwater shot release shots have been, have been getting a lot more popular these days, Yeah, you know, and well, just and avoiding the taking them out of the water in general. Oh, well that's even better too. I mean, I mean, if they're on the boat, you know, you know, yeah, or you leave them in the net and leave them in the water. Right. It's just hard if you're in deep seawater, let's say, you can't jump out of the boat and, and film that fish. You know, maybe you have a person that's floating around with a camera waterproof in the water that can do that. But then you're going to have a hard time keeping that person uh, out of your topside mm -hmm. shots. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's the other thing about working with multiple cameras. So there's a trend to uh, lenses. You, you can use, you know, I use a lot of different cameras. I use C300s. I use FS7 Mark IIs. I actually own FS7 Mark IIs by Sony. I like that camera a lot. It does 4K, everything else. Uh, and then, you know, I use Alexa Minis and I use uh, other kinds, you know, Miras and things like that. But, um, and Reds too, a lot of Red cams. But uh, basically, you have to pay attention to your lenses and your sizes because if you guys both have very wide lenses on, you might not be able to zoom in that close so you can't frame each other out mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you really want to try to find the lens that can be wide and long at the same time so if you're working in tandem with somebody mm -hmm. someone could be getting the close-ups but maybe they might be in your shot so you need to be able to zoom in and frame them out you know that's the hard part with like a go um, drone shot you know because you're yeah. always by yourself so you got the guy looking down with his head down looking at the remote you know and yeah <laughs> you have to almost have two vessels or just plan it out you know, you, gotta you know, we do our drone shots either before it all happens or after and we stay so wide that we can't really tell that, you know, who's uh, right. Yeah. Right. That, not, that we can't tell what they're saying. We can't tell what they're doing because sometimes it's nice to have that to cut to as well. So mm -hmm. you can knock those some of those drone shots out early or what we'll do is we'll just do special takes for just the drone. We'll move out of the way, you know, but a lot of times what I'll do is I'll film from a point where I can get, uh, the wider shots from the ground while the drone is flying, but I know I can zoom underneath the drone. So I don't see the drone in my shot. And then I know I'm out of the way of the drone in the other shot too. So I, I'll use that kind of positioning to get the two for one. Like if the, mm -hmm. if the person's fishing, you know, I've got that wide shot of them fishing. If it's fish on, you know, well then it's on the drone, but then I can long lens because my lens is long enough to, uh, frame out that drone and then still get the action from a different angle in order to cut to it, you know, and then hopefully I've got my GoPros in good spots where, uh, I can cut to those too, you know, and, and suddenly be on the boat with the guy or girl that's fishing 
and then uh, get some comments and some stuff and then get the release, you know? Hey, Glenn, um, you obviously, you, you know, when you're shooting wildlife, it's they're, they're the wildlife parts, the, the X factor. So it's not really, you don't have this static set where um, you can, you know, go off of a very tight shot list and script and all this stuff. So how, um, how much this stuff uh, from a production process, production standpoint, how much of this stuff is just planned almost like last minute? Do you guys, do you guys do a lot of pre-planning for the night before? How does that, how does that work and then translate into the day? Like operationally, how do you guys approach that? Yeah. Good question. You know, Mike Tyson used to say everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face or whatever, (laughs) punched in the nose or something. So that's how it is. So yes, we we have people that scout out locations beforehand. We have the other thing too, that we do that's very, very uh, beneficial for us is we will work with locals. You know, we don't just come into an area and like try to figure it out ourselves, you know, that there's no way it would take you weeks to try right. to figure out where lions are. So they they pay the money to have local guides and rangers and park professionals and people or, or scientists that know where these animals are. So that we know. So what they'll do is they'll go ahead and they'll plan the day. They'll say, okay, we're going to get up really early, like at 4 in the morning, you know, 3 in the morning, 3.30. We're going to eat breakfast, feed the crew. Then everybody's going to be off by like 5 a.m. Or, or earlier, you know, depending upon how far we have to travel. And so there is a plan. Now, again, Chad, this is like if there's if we're just filming animals, it changes. You know, your even your rigs and your lenses change. If you're just filming animals, you're probably going to be on a very long lens and you're going to be in a position where you are going to just wait. Kind of like if you're hunting on the edge of a meadow. And you didn't move, you know, you weren't moving around trying to scare things up from the brush. Mm-hmm. You're, you're there just waiting silently in a place where, you know, they eat or come to drink water and you're going to film a lot of these shots, you know, that's one way. Now, if you're working with a host and you're telling the story, then what you'll do is you'll set up that story first. And that may be in the schedule or it may not be in the schedule, you know, or if it's raining or if there's no animals that day because something happened, you know. You might go ahead and work with your host all day and film the search and the hunt and the preparation uh, because you're not seeing animals. So you sort of switch to that plan. You know, you build out the whole uh, the team effort and the and the human edge. Uh, and then when you can finally get that opportunity to get those animals, you might dedicate two or three or or a number of days just to filming that animal, especially if they're rare. So that way you're not trying to get those shots when you're working with the science crew trying, trying to tag or locate or work with an animal, you know? And you guys all have radios, huh? You're, you're mic'd up yeah. like every cameraman's talking to the other cameraman, right? There's we, always a, a line of communication going on. That's it. But my God, it's tough when there actually, actually is animal because then everybody wants to whisper like this. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've ever whispered over a radio, it's like, so yeah that's it gets exciting and no one can understand each other but i mean that so so tip so yeah so they'll scout it out also two hosts they change things you know uh, we have meetings and meetings about what's supposed to happen. All of a sudden, the host shows up and they go, "Nope, we're not doing that. We're doing this. We're doing this." You know, right. and then it's like, "Oh, okay," you know, and uh, then the day gets shorter or longer depending upon what they say, and um, you know, and you get it done. But, but too, that's that's where the professionalism comes into because 
you know, it, it, you go. I like that there's always a plan. That's always a nice thing. But if the plan's going to change, or it's just not going to work out, or things happen they don't foresee, then you just switch gears and you do what you know how to do. You know, and you yeah. you build you you under the first the first thing to understand what to do when you go out to work is what is the show that we're making. That's the first question. And if you know the show that we're making, you'll know exactly what you need to get. You know. Um, so you're talking. You're, you're basically touching on content strategy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because. Because you, you, and you know, you'll have these people that work really hard trying to put together what's going to happen. But you know, like anything else, you can't predict animals or weather or 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 this or that. So you have to have plan A, but also even if it's not written down or you didn't talk about it, plan B, C, or D. You know, and and I'll always throw up my hand if it's not working out. I'll say, hey, look, I have a suggestion. Why don't we break this person off to go try to find something? You know. And, um, and, and then these people can be on the hunt as we try to learn where these animals are, get some shots of the animal before we get there. And then we can do that multi-camera coverage with the scientists and the host. Right. Uh, you know, there's just the way that you attack the day now. And that's something that can't be written out ahead of time. You just have to kind of gauge what's going on and then make those plans to get the show done, you know? It's pretty cool. And I, I think so that yeah, a lot it. of people that, um, you know, that want to cover, their fishing experience or their outdoor experience can, I think, get tips there, pull stuff yeah. out. That's nuggets, really, really helpful. Sort of stuff. got my mind going. I mean, it, yeah, man. This is what I went up. You know, ever since I was a kid, we've been trying to videotape our experiences and capture them in in fun ways. You know, and it's it's really fun getting to talk to you about this stuff. It just makes me want to oh, go man. out and and shoot a video or do right. something cool. You know, yeah. Well, well just, we're, I'm hoping we're inspiring others to go out and you know be a little more deliberate and methodical in, in terms of, uh, you know, capturing your own and telling your own stories, but also obviously making sure the fish isn't suffering for the, lack, yeah. for the, for the story, for the camera. Yeah. That's yeah. the, that's the worst. It, and when that's happening, even, even in, in what I do, uh, we just hurry up and let it go. Cause it's just not worth it. You yeah. know, you don't want to hurt, uh, an animal for the sake of a television show, but you know, at the same time, um, what I like, especially working with scientists and stuff, is is that you are uh, you're there for a legitimate reason, and they would be doing it anyway with with or without you being there. You know, yeah. so that's always good. But but yeah, for sure, I'm I'm really proud to, to hear you guys. I know about the barbless hooks, but also keeping the the fish wet is great. You know, that's yeah, that's a strong. I support that a lot. You know, and too, it's fun to get in the water. You know, if if you're in a river, you know, and you have that animal, um, you know at that water level and everything else. I mean, it makes for nice shots. I love that halfway in the water, halfway out of yep. the water shot all the time. You yep. know, it's great. What's most important composition or lighting? Oh my God. It's, and you can't okay. say both. You got to, so, you got to no, pick one. I, I won't, I won't say both, but if the animal's rare, lighting goes out the window and you just need to get that animal on the camera. However it looks, you know, um, but, but lighting, I think, makes for good photography. Uh, and composition is very important, and you have to train your eye to, to recognize it and how to do it. Um, but, you know, nowadays, composition can be compromised in many ways to be interesting and not normal. So if something looks really great lighting-wise, I tend to go for that because uh, depending upon where the animal is, it could be saying something or mean something, you know? So... 
I like rule of thirds, you know, for composition. I like to throw things in corners. I like to put things, uh, but I'll tell you something. When you get good enough, you won't need to choose because your 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 face will already go to that that position. Right. And you know, I'm noticing a huge change even right now. You know, when you look at interviews for these television shows and these documentaries, pay attention because before I don't know if you ever watch um, what's the name of the program twenty four seven on HBO. Uh, usually, it's all sports. Um, they'll frame their interviews in strange ways. Their composition will be like, uh, instead of looking towards the camera, the subject will be all the way to the edge of, of the frame looking a different way. But mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of interesting in a lot of ways, you know, or, or Dave Grohl made that documentary series about music and they would really play with the composition. And typically the composition of interviews that we do now, we will lead the person one way or another. And when I say lead, I mean, place them to one side of the frame and have them look across camera and give them room. But now I'm noticing there's a trend going on where everybody is dead center mm -hmm. and tight, which, right? So they're yeah, the top of their heads cropped off, you know, and, and then it's moved away and now it's coming back to where people are dead center in the frame when they talk to the camera. I've noticed it. Yeah. Um, that kind of le leads into the next question because you mentioned rule of thirds. So what, what settings can an amateur cinematographer use in their cameras that will give them as much margin of error, I guess as much of a margin of error as possible? So well, the rule of thirds, um, you mentioned that. I think most people know what that is, and I, I don't want to get into the details of what that is. You can sure. look it up. But the main thing is like on my phone, I have um, grid lines turned on on my yeah. for my video and that helps That's you huge help that helps you with composition um especially with rule of third shots so when when glenn's talking about you know framing a subject in the corner um one of those one of the eyeballs would be in the top right quadrant of the grid for example yeah yeah what others use use that grid also i think the definition one of them between professional and amateur photography is isolating your subject one way to do that uh, is with depth of field. You know, everyone gets excited about portrait mode. And I know now these new phones, uh, you can select that background uh, to be out of focus or in focus. But if you can use focus to, to isolate your subject, you right, know, right. Uh, that is a huge difference between professional and amateur photography. If you can um, get your fish, uh, you know, briefly and, or use your lens to zoom in, a little bit for an artistic shot, obviously without compromising or hurting the animal. But if you could, if you could be ready and zoom in and focus and, and use what I call a wider aperture, that means basically on your lens, if you're using a professional camera, if you see yourself more towards the uh, f-stop setting of a 2.8, two, yep, yep. yeah, or a two, uh, and you zoom in and focus on an animal, you're gonna what we call in the industry crush that background, which Boke. makes that background out of focus. Yeah. And you're going to be able to isolate that animal and have a really artistic picture rather than just having that camera wide and straight up on it and, and, and taking a photo of it. It helps, know? it helps block the background too, Glenn, so that people don't know where we're fishing. Yeah, it does that. I do that too. If I want to hide something <laughs> ugly, I just make it out of focus and zoom in as far as I can. And 
and shoot it wide open, you know? Even with the, uh, our iPhones, I've been doing that. Instead of using that portrait mode, I zoom in with that other lens and then tap yeah. tap the subject to get them in focus, and it, it automatically will blur that background. It doesn't do it yeah. like the digital form that the camera does, and, but it, it looks cleaner to me. Yeah. It looks you know? better, and you'll you'll put it over your mantelpiece for sure, you know? <laughs> so let's talk about... Better. Let's talk about technology's impact on on your job and where you see it headed. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, because it's a we uh, we were talking like last week uh, the run up to us, uh, us actually recording, and it, there's some exciting stuff going on. So, um, you've yeah. been at it for a long time, and you know how how has it impacted your your profession? I mean, you've been shooting since the '90s. Yeah. Well, what I've seen is that the cameras now uh, have a wider range. Um, and when I say that, I mean, and we say it's called a latitude, we call it latitude because, um, of the wide range of exposure that the camera can now handle, you know, before in the old days we'd use, I mean, I'm not talking about film cameras because when you were, when people were using film to film movies in the sixties and seventies and before then they were shooting on a film negative and they had all kinds of range of exposure, uh, when they would do that. For these electronic cameras, we used to only have about maybe two stops in either direction of your exact exposure, you know, and you had to watch out for things like sun blowing out or noisiness in the blacks when you'd adjust your grain, you know, to, to, to have low light or something like that. Now these cameras record uh, at such a high latitude that what I see is uh, you need less lighting and you can shoot better images in worse lighting conditions. You know, when you say latitude, you're, range. you're saying that's like ISO, right? That's like a, is that? Uh, yeah. an ISO. Yeah, exactly. Like a, a sensitivity uh, right. or a film speed. But, but even if you are, if your exposure is off by, uh, two stops or you're too dark with your image, or even if you're more blown out these days, uh, the cameras are becoming very heavy in post now. So you can take a computer mm-hmm. and adjust that range. And what I'm trying to tell you is the information is there. Mm-hmm. So the camera is is gathering more information for you to adjust the image in post or on your computer or uh, you know on, on your on your app that you use on your phone after you take a photo to basically a Snapseed or something to um, adjust the quality of the image. That's what I've noticed with these cameras, and you know you'll see it all the time. Like even in movies, professional movies, people are lighting less now because you don't need as much light. To have the image, they're using a lot of what we call practicals in the industry. That means lamps, lanterns, uh, lights. You know, like on Star Trek. You know, when they were filming the, the 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 Chris Pine Star Trek, they didn't even light the bridge anymore because all of the LED lights as the props, they were shooting it like a, they had to bring it down a lot of times because it was just too much light coming from the set. Mm. You know, uh, so I'm noticing a higher sensitivity in the cameras in order to capture an image and then adjust it on the computer after it's shot that's what i'm noticing yeah like even in like lightroom you can you know you can take an image and if it's if it's in uh if it's shot raw so all the all the data is there for the image yeah um, you can actually use a brush you know basically if uh think of it as a lasso and only expose a certain section of that that particular you know picture so if you have like a perfectly exposed shot where but your your cloud line is is kind of a little too dark but you yeah. know, you like the exposure everywhere else you can br- put a brush on the um on the top of the the cloud layer and adjust the contrast or whatnot bring it up 
bring it up or down hue wise, do a bunch of stuff just to that section. So that that in post is like that's where you kind of like make up for any mistakes that you've done um, during your initial shot. And your yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, if you are in the field and you're trying to photograph something and you have a choice, but you don't know what to do, it's always better to go a little bit on the darker side. Right. right. Meaning, I was gonna meaning say that. because if you bring it up in the computer, you, if, if you blow something out, it gets too bright. It looks white. It's all blown out. You cannot bring that down as easily as if you were dark and you can bring it up. Plus, yeah. you risk losing information if you blow things out because a blowout means there's just nothing there because there's too much light. And uh, like the GH5 the, um, that we use, it has a setting that'll actually put lines into that blown out area so that you yeah. can instantly see that there's Where something. Where it's blown out. Yeah, that's right. And usually it's the clouds, right? We're always outside. Yeah. It's usually the Anything clouds and the sky first. Snow. Yep. You know, we call those zebras. Okay. Mm. Yeah. That's what we call them mostly zebra zebra lines. You can use zebras mm -hmm. to expose and that and you can set them to a hundred, which will tell you where you are gonna lose your information. Mm. So what do you yeah. think of the uh camera phone video technology that's that's coming out? I mean not not even like six years ago. Yeah. The the idea of having bokeh or depth of field on your phone uh -huh. was kind of a foreign thing. You would no normally get that with actual glass. Um it, what you know? What do you? What, what are your thoughts on it? It scares me. Well, <laughs> Why does it doesn't it scare, scare you? It doesn't scare me because I'm too old. Uh, maybe maybe I could be replaced by an iPhone one day uh, as a cameraman, as a director of photography. Uh, but I you know, I, so. I don't know. They they. <laughs> I don't think no, so. But, You're but maybe somebody starting out right now would have to compete with that iPhone. I mean, a lot of photographers I know. Uh, are having a hard time because people have these great, beautiful phones in their pockets to take behind the scenes photos and this and that, and they're and the networks are using them. Yep. You know, yeah. Um, and I think DSLRs are so smart now because now you can take a photo and there's a they're Bluetooth connected, so it right. just appears yep. on your phone. Yeah, that is smart because otherwise those cameras would go the way of the Dover, you know. But uh, you know, I I think it won't be long before people are using iPhones. To film television shows, you know, to film <laughs> even films that you'll watch in a theater, you know, it, it's really not going to be long. You know, you, I mean, it's not a stretch to think of a 4K camera on your phone. It probably already exists. Now, the compression and the memory is probably not that great, but that's only a matter of time, you know. Right. And the, and the cameras are getting smaller and they're getting lighter. Uh, the lenses, though, when you get into the real deal, the real photography... No one is making a miniature-sized lens for these systems. They're still very large. They can be heavy. It's just the bodies are getting smaller, you know? Right. The camera bodies themselves. It's allowing things to get shot that have never been, you know, nobody's ever gotten a picture yeah. of or a video of, you know? it's. I've always said, when that GoPro came out, I was like, all right, somebody's going to get eaten by a great white shark, and then they're going to catch the yeah. shark, and they're going <laughs> to get the video off of, you know, <laughs> that shark. Right. <laughs> yeah. What was that movie with Ryan Reynolds' girlfriend where she uses the GoPro to help save herself? She's stranded on the rock with the shark. Drift, her. adrift. Yeah. I haven't seen <laughs> yeah. that one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, it's worth a laugh. It's good. It's fun. <laughs> what would you say to, I mean, it, you obviously got, went right into the industry from a young age, but what would you say to some of these kids that are out here listening to this and wanting to get into yeah. filming and um, cinematography? Like career path, Here, like how would they yeah. do it? Yeah. Yeah. 
here's what I would say. I would say if, uh, learn where the camera goes. Try to anticipate that because cameras will come and go and you might know everything there is to know about the technical aspect of the camera, the format, everything else. That's great, but that's the part that's going to change. The part that doesn't change is the ability to tell a story, know where the camera is supposed to go to capture a scene, mm-hmm. and start thinking about storytelling rather than the technical aspects. Because the tech aspects are great to know about because it'll, it'll allow you to adjust your range and where, what you should do. Um, but what will never change is, uh, and where you can build and where the creativity to me is, is where the where does the camera go and how can I tell a story with this camera? That's the most important thing, and you can do that by, I you know I would suggest watching your favorite movie, but why don't you try watching your favorite movie without the sound turned on, so you can just pay attention to where the camera is and how the film is cut. When you start doing things like that, you're like, wow, look what they needed to make this 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 picture. Mm-hmm. And then when you get out into the field, you already have a creative backbone or fallback plan or way or method to capture what you're trying to make on camera. And that's what I would suggest to new people is learn where the camera goes. Yeah. There's a, very important. there's a film and, and I don't know, you've probably seen this Glenn. Um, have you seen Ambach? No, I've not. It's a, it's a Thai, Thai boxer film. Oh, I've, and I've seen uh, trailers and things for it. Yes. There's, I know about there's it. one scene in that movie. That's a continuous shot. And it's like a fight scene with on multi-levels. It's like yeah. in this, it's in the circular building and the building's got like this corkscrew staircase along the outside of it. And oh, I don't wow. know how the hell they shot it. There's some, some big boom or arm in the middle on this big uh-huh. camera, but the whole thing like just tr- goes up, up these four or five levels. Um, and yeah. metaphorically, as he goes up each stair, each, each, you know, section of stairs, the fights, the bosses get harder and harder until he fights the one at the top. But this is a single take. And wow. if you want to like watch how what you're talking about to me, that's like the first thing I thought of was that scene in Ambach when he's fighting up the stairs of this this building. It's just Ooh. sick, and how well, they how they pulled it off, I have no idea. I'll have a look at it. I I mean I know oh. I've I've watched Atomic Blonde with Charlie Theron yeah. and that staircase sequence. They and... they took that. I'm pretty sure they took that from that Ambach film. I'll send oh. you I'll send you a link <laughs> okay. to it. <laughs> or yeah. Children of Men. Have you seen Children of Men? Yeah, but I I can't. Is it the when the building blows out and they're they're getting shot at? Is it yeah, that or one? when yeah. they're trying to escape the that the camp and they get into the car and the camera goes into this small car and rotates around and yeah. never cuts. Yeah. And they're getting pretty. It's pretty. In fact, my friend uh, Judd Cremata, he just wrote and directed and just shot over the summer a one take two hour movie, what? or I think it's an hour and twenty minutes. Sorry about these teenage girls and they are having a slumber party and they want to scare the crap out of the new girl that lives down the street. Only when they go to do it, they never come back and something's happening. It's like a thriller. Oh God. It's like urban Blair Witch basically. Yeah. They shot from, from uh, late afternoon till the sun goes down and they had to in camera real time, change light temperatures and do all this stuff. I mean, it was a huge challenge. The one take, Holy long shit. take, is becoming very popular. There's also an Alfred Hitchcock movie. I think it's Alfred Hitchcock. It's called Rope. Everybody looks at this movie called Rope, and it's also long take. And, and the Russians were doing this long take business in a movie called I Am Cuba, uh, where they go up and down through a side of an apartment building and through a pool. 
and that's where Boogie Nights got a lot of its shot ideas oh, from that film. Okay. Yeah. I mean that and that that to me is great because you know what I love and I you know Roma it won best cinematography. I was happy because uh I like it when films aren't so cutty and they let the actors act in front of the camera and it's like this kind of yeah. maison scene they call it it's like this this movement of characters in front of this lens and the camera is not so busy so you you, you know you don't even notice it <laughs> after two minutes you go wait the camera hasn't even cut yet you know and then that i to me that is a, a classic great old school old style way to make a great film because we got into this area where things were so cutty all the time and that's great for frenetic action and stuff but it is nice to see that camera just roll and have things happen. There's there's a scene in Kingsman. You guys have seen Kingsman, right? Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. remember the, the church fight scene? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, that's kind of maybe. like in the middle of what you're talking about because it feels like it's a single single shot, like one take. Yeah. But the way that they edited it, they they did some really clever editing so that you know when they would, if they needed to make a, an edit, they would actually film the actor walking through the frame, right? And so when the actor's yeah. shoulder gets really close to the lens, it kind of darkens yeah. the lens, and that's where they make their cut. But when they stitch it all together, um, it's just one big fluid scene. It's a really, really beautifully done just fight yeah. scene, you know, and it's kind of in the middle of not too frenetic, but it captures, like, the actor actually moving through the the space like you're talking about, Glenn. Right. So, where, dude, where are you off to next? Are you going to cl- climb any uh, uh, mountains or <laughs> hang off any cliffs? I, I watched Free Solo last right. night, right. and uh, my hands were, yeah. my hands were sweating the entire time. Yeah. I'm just where, like, where's Sil Team Six going next? This guy's crazy. Oh, well, right now uh, I am in a holding pattern. I've got a couple shows that I'm waiting on. I'm, I'm waiting to see if even this Jeff Corwin show comes back, which it very well could. That would mean 22 countries around the world again. Um, other show uh i i have an alaska series that might go um the thing is right now there's a thing called real screen that's where producers and production companies get together with networks and they decide the shows that they're going to make over the spring summer and fall so that happens right around this time so everybody is in pre-production right now for things that they haven't let anyone know about yet so uh you know i've been in town i've been working um I had a very busy time with the Oscars. I filmed Elton John. It was his cameraman for oh, cool. uh, his Oscars party that he had in Hollywood. Very cool. So I got to be with him. Uh, and then before that, I was working on uh, a bunch of music awards, image awards, things. I got to film John Legend and a bunch of other talented <laughs> musicians at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. I was there for a while. So it's been kind of a busy time, but right now it's the quiet before the storm. So oh, that's cool. we're waiting to see. What is going to come down the pipe? If uh, if you could if you could call out your dream location, where would you go right now? My goodness, um, <laughs> it's a tough one, huh? You know what? I would probably love to explore, like snow leopards in Nepal, something like that, and bring back some Nepalese coins. That's it, and have some ancient artifacts. I'd love to explore like old world ruins and things. That's my favorite is endangered animals and ancient architecture. So anywhere cool. like, uh, you know, I would love to go to a war torn Middle East and film their ancient ruins. You know, that would be pretty exciting. That's uh, dope. but again, we'll see, you know, you get the producers and the, and the accountants and the bean, bean counters and the, uh, 
insurance and then all of a sudden you, you, you find out you're just going to go to uh, you know Montana and film a mountain you know that's what happens typically but well, cool, we man. can dream right yeah yeah well, thank you very much for taking the two hour. This we're at a two hour mark right now, almost on the button, and it's. How about it? I always love talking to you, man, and and I'm glad we got to catch up next last week, and uh, I'm really stoked you were on the show today with us. Um, well, thanks Nick, for having me. Do you it's been have anything? Super great. No, it was fun. Yeah, thanks a lot, Glenn. It's great talking with you. And before you go, Glenn, what's your what's your Instagram? How can people follow oh. you? Dog two nine seven. You can find me at C Dog two nine seven on the, the letter C, not S E A, but the letter C. Yeah, dog. the letter C D O G, and then the numbers two nine. As in, as in chili dog. That's right. Why Which do they is call a whole you? Another story. Yeah. We never got to that one. I know. I know. Maybe for next time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for next time, guys. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. If you like this episode, uh, leave us a review. What else? Uh, you know, we got hats and stuff coming at some point. Got some apps dropping at some point soon. I want a hat. Check out Cast Hope. Check out casthope.org for sure. Doing some awesome stuff. And we will uh, talk to you guys next week, most likely, if we're still around. <laughs> this podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fish Bio and Amped Up Build. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.bill.